Method and Madness is a true crime podcast dealing with events of violence that may be disturbing to some. Listener discretion is advised. Strange texts turn into threatening phone calls for three families, and someone knows their every move. This is Method and Madness, Episode 32, Restricted, The Cell Phone Stalker. I'm your host, Don Gandhi. The body was dismembered. A ransom note was discovered. Hiker stumbled upon the nude body of a local... Police are looking into the brutal slaying of a young woman. There may be a clue in a released 911 call from... The victim said she was stalked for five years. Held captive inside a storage container. It was a twisted mix of obsession and revenge. No weapon has been located. Shot while asleep in their beds. Method and Madness. Hey, listeners, we're rolling out something new. Along with the usual true crime, Method and Madness will be introducing real-life mysteries to the podcast. You got a little taste of it with episode 25, The Watcher. And now, for the final episode of season one, here is a Method and Madness mystery, a true one, and it's creepy. Let's dive in. Imagine this. You're in your home, having a conversation with your family. Your cell phone pings a few moments later. You have a new voicemail. You play it back, and what you hear makes you shudder. It's your own voice. The conversation you just had was recorded by someone and sent to your cell phone. Kind of bone-chilling, right? Threatening, even. Well, this is exactly what happened to one family, then two, then three, in Furcrest, Washington. You are all dead. I will kill you. It all began in February of 2007, when Courtney Kuykendall, age 16, was hanging out at a friend's house and her cell phone started blowing up. Approximately 25 of her friends texting asking why she had just sent them a message with a single word, gay. Courtney responded that she hadn't sent the messages and didn't know what had happened, a glitch, perhaps, but it seemed harmless enough, so she shrugged it off and went about her day. That would have been a fairly forgettable experience, except that it only escalated from there, and what started as an odd experience became a nuisance. And then, terror. Courtney lived in Furcrest, Washington, with her younger siblings and her mom, Heather, and father, Tim. The family began receiving text messages and phone calls on a daily basis from an unknown caller. The messages and calls would come in not only to Courtney's cell phone, but her mother's, her father's, and even their landline phone and the caller ID would display as restricted, with a raspy voice on the other end that wasn't mincing words. We hate you guys so much. The texts, calls, and even voicemails were coming at all times of the day, including the middle of the night. 
It seemed like the work of a child, a teenager playing a prank, trying to disguise their voice. Mom and Dad asked Courtney who could be doing this. Was there a friend or someone at school that was messing around? But Courtney didn't think so. She couldn't think of anybody who would have targeted her or her family. And then the annoying juvenile calls got threatening. I know where you are. I know where you live. I'm going to kill you. Since the calls were now threatening violence and even death, the Kuykendall family went to the police. Law enforcement in Pierce County said they'd look into the matter. In the meantime, the family continued to receive calls, which they described as relentless. They would turn off their phone to get a break from the harassment, but the phones would turn back on by themselves. Courtney's, Tim's, and Heather's ringtones would change on their own, and purchases for said ringtones started showing up on the family's cell phone bills. And then, the police contacted the Kuykendalls with an update. They had traced the calls and knew who was responsible for the threats. The calls were all coming from one cell phone, Courtney Kuykendall's cell phone. The 16-year-old swore to her parents that it wasn't her, she wasn't responsible. Heather Kuykendall said that she knew in her heart her daughter wasn't involved, but of course, it was a reasonable accusation. Some of the messages and calls sounded like the work of a teen. Some of the messages sounded like it might be a girl's voice. She and her husband confronted Courtney, who adamantly denied it all. Heather and Tim took away their daughter's phone, but to their shock, the calls continued, even with Courtney's phone turned off or tucked away in a drawer. Tim Kuykendall noticed a notification on his cell phone one afternoon while he was home with his wife and kids. Upon checking the message, he realized what he was hearing was a conversation that his wife and daughter had had just a moment earlier in the other room. Their own phones were now being used against them as eavesdropping devices. When the Kuykendalls urged the police to look into the matter again, that their phones were recording them and that it must be someone outside the house, they felt brushed off. At the time, the police doubted the story. They had tracked down the origin of the calls and weren't convinced this was the work of anyone but Courtney Kuykendall or someone in her family. When the family suggested that someone must be using a type of spyware or cloning Courtney's phone in some way, they were told it simply wasn't possible. I can't wait till you die, oh my gosh. You will all be dead, even the officers. Upon leaving the police headquarters one day, a voicemail message arrived on one of the Kuykendall's phones. It was a recording of the conversation that had just happened inside with the officers. Feeling helpless, the family's only option was to buy new phones changed their numbers, which they did two to three times in a four-month period. They closed their accounts with Sprint and opened new ones, but every time, 
The mysterious caller knew about it, and the calls continued with messages like this one. I know you changed your number. Stop doing that. And then the threats began to spread. Heather Kuykendall's sister, Darcy Price, lived nearby, and her family also began to receive calls and texts. One of the calls included a threat of a school shooting where her children attended and a threat toward the Price family's dogs, Ike and Plumpy. There will be a shooting at Curtis and Whittier today, so don't send your kids. They will be dead. So dead. I know where you are. I know where you live. I'm going to kill Ike and Plumpy. Darcy Price said that after she went to the police herself, quote, They kind of pushed us aside, I think, a little bit. So far, I think they can't figure it out. So we had to come to the media for help to try to solve this. It's been traumatizing and terrorizing for all of our family, our extended family, my children. It's unbelievable. And Courtney's friend, Taylor McKay, who lived across the street from the Kuykendalls, began to get harassed along with her family as well. We are going to start coming every night. You just might not know when. We're looking at you. Courtney got a call from the stalker saying they knew what class she was in at the time, confirming the family's suspicions that it must be a schoolmate, harassing her during the school day. But the threats came no matter where the family members were or what time. Out on a hike, they'd get a phone call telling them to get out of the woods. The caller even described what they were wearing. The Kuykendalls, the Prices, and the McKays said that the harassment started to go beyond the use of technology. On some nights, they would hear banging on their doors, screaming from outside. Courtney didn't feel safe in her own home, so she started always being around somebody, never being left alone for fear of what might happen. And her younger siblings stopped sleeping in their own rooms and spent every night with their parents. While the police seemed at a loss and changing phones and numbers didn't help, the families took to DIY methods of maintaining privacy, taping small pieces of cardboard over their phones' mics and cameras. And even with those small safety measures, the stalkers still had their eyes and ears on the families. While babysitting some children at a nearby park, Courtney received messages that the stalker knew where she was, and even the 11-year-old girl she was taking care of, who also had a cell phone, she received a call that day. It seemed nobody was safe if they were in Courtney's circle. Her friend Taylor's mom, Andrea McKay, had an alarming encounter one day while she was home slicing limes in her kitchen when she got a phone call. I prefer lemons. The family's best guess was that their harasser, who they referred to as Restricted, the name that always came up on the caller ID, must be someone in their late teens or early 20s. But because some of the calls came from a male and some from a female, they wondered how many people were actually involved. 
The threats went on for four months, with Fircrest Police Chief John Cheeseman saying, quote, We're almost dumbfounded. We've never seen anything like this. Courtney was accused, according to her, by many people, locals, strangers online, and even by the FBI who got involved in the investigation. The Pierce County Sheriff's Department said that they were not calling Courtney a suspect, but that naturally they had looked into the possibility that the harassment was coming from within the family. They said, quote, it's someone that is close enough to them to know this much about them. It seems like it's someone who is tied into the group, a family member, a friend, or an enemy. When the three families went public with their horror, they spoke with ABC News, Fox News, and even went on the Tyra Banks show to defend Courtney from being seen as a suspect and to explain the extent of the harassment and how it went beyond what could be a teenager doing prank calls from their bedroom. But most of all, the families were seeking answers. How could this happen? How was it technically possible? How could someone use their own phones against them? Knowing all their phone numbers, turning the phones on and off remotely, purchasing and changing ringtones, recording conversations inside their homes, and watching them. Sprint spokesman Matt Sullivan said, We are unaware of any technology that would allow the activity that's being reported here. We are partnering with law enforcement to investigate. We're not exactly sure what is being done to these phones. With the attention on the case, experts weighed in and provided possible ways this hacking could have happened. From software and firmware manipulation to viruses infected with the use of sites like MySpace. They said that there was three ways that the control of the family's cell phones would be possible— by installing software with physical access to the phone, using a downloadable Trojan, or hacking the carrier's website for phones that rely on the internet to store account settings. But IT experts also at the time said that it would be very difficult to continue reinfecting once a new phone was purchased that changing of ringtones would be extremely challenging for a young, inexperienced hacker to do without having the physical phone in hand. And experts said that it was unlikely a cell phone camera was always pointed at someone, that what was more likely with the caller preferring lemons, for instance, or knowing what the alleged victims were wearing, was that the stalker wasn't using technology to spy at all, probably just looking through windows. What some experts concluded was that either Courtney was orchestrating a huge hoax or someone had cloned or spoofed her phone, making it look like the calls were coming from her. So what could it be? What are the possibilities? There's a possibility that Courtney Kuykendall started this as a prank and it got out of hand, but that still leaves a whole lot of holes in the story, like how the harassment continued when her parents seized her phone. Someone outside of the three families is pulling a prank by using technology to clone Courtney's phone. Again, lots of holes here if some of what is being reported is true. 
Like the watching everything through a cell phone camera and even knowing what's going on when the cameras are covered. The family claimed that they removed the batteries from their phones and even that didn't stop the stalker. From what I understand, that's just not possible. So what's the truth? Well, the case was never solved, and eventually, the harassment dwindled and then died. Was Courtney Kuykendall's family exaggerating some of the details to point the blame away from Courtney? What about the other two families involved? Who would go to such lengths to watch a woman cutting up limes in her kitchen? Teenagers could, for sure. But why to this extent? What would be someone's goal in tormenting three families for four months and then just stopping with no gain? Was it for kicks? Done out of boredom. Experts say if the family isn't in on it, then it's possibly a form of school bullying. Courtney inadvertently pissed someone off at school, someone was out to ruin her life, or possibly even hoped that she would be held accountable for the actions. For now, it remains a mystery. Thank you so much for listening to Method and Madness. That's a wrap on Season 1. 11 months, 32 episodes. It's been an amazing experience, and I have all of you to thank. We'll return in the new year with some exciting new episodes. By the way, this is an independent podcast, so if you'd like to support it, you can leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or on Podchaser. I'm on Twitter at MethodPod and on Instagram at Method and Madness Pod. There's a Method and Madness page on Facebook as well. To chat or discuss the episode, reach out to me at MethodAndMadnessPod at gmail.com. Method and Madness is researched, written, and hosted by me. It's edited by Mo and Spo. Thank you to Faith and John of the Mission Rejected podcast and to Rohan for lending their voices for the theme music. Method and Madness is a true crime podcast dealing with dark and disturbing subject matter. For crisis support, text HELLO to 741-741.